Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We are thankful to be here. We're glad that you are here uh, this morning. Uh, and as always, we have a lot to do, so let's get started. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we will begin reading in just a moment uh, from 1 Peter 5. Last week, we started out by addressing the church, namely, um, namely the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. We talked to the, about the elders who are to shepherd the flock that is among them, to shepherd them as Christ shepherds the church, to shepherd them faithfully until our chief shepherd appears again. Faithful shepherds then will receive the unfading crown of glory. How amazing and how glorious that our reward is, not ours to achieve or to conjure up, but it is one that is given to us by Christ. Verse 5 says to church members and Younger and older, submit or subject yourselves under the authority of the elders. But as we've previously talked about, how that verse goes further because he now tells all of us, all of you, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Submission toward the elders and now humility toward one another are the ways in which a church endures suffering together. Last week in verse 6 and 7, we, we uh, unpacked humility even more. We saw the, the priority of humbling yourself and myself under the mighty hand of God. We all recognize the, the need to be humble before the Lord. The desire is there to be humble, but we also recognize the difficulty it is to be humble. Humility is to trust him at his word. Humility to take things as they come and to be faithful through them and to trust him through them. To humble yourself because at the proper time when the chief shepherd appears, when the faithful elders are crowned, Christ will exalt you. So all the anxieties that humility creates in trusting him, the fight against pride, we are casting them always upon him because he cares for you and his mighty hand is for you. And before we get started in our passage this morning, I wanted to repeat all of that once again because I wanted us to just think about, just for a second, the magnitude of that truth. The magnitude of his mighty hand. The magnitude of the, of the truth that he cares for you. My care is finite. His care is infinite and omnipotent and omniscient. He cares for you. So cast all your anxieties upon him. 
reality of the gospel when a sinner's heart is open to how God has sent his son to die on the cross to atone for their sin and how now they too can be forgiven, transformed, adopted, and glorified. We know that he cares for you. And that brings us to our passage this morning, what is the finale of 1 Peter chapter 5. Our 1 Peter. But 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likely chosen, sends you a greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all, all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and may his spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, we have made it to the end of 1 Peter end of his letter to the suffering Christians in Asia Minor, we have now come to the end. And coming on the heels of humility that we talked about last week, he gives these direct imperatives. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, verse 8. Stand firm in verse 12. He also gives us some pretty shocking truth about the devil, who is our adversary. We see the solidarity of universal Christian suffering and the promise that Christ, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. Our time in 1 Peter has been very helpful and encouraging and faith-building that as the church, we too can endure in suffering and in persecution. I hope and I pray that God's word has served you well and has encouraged you and has built you upon the solid rock of Christ because that is the whole point. Written to, if you remember, all the way back from day one to the elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ that grace and peace may be multiplied to you, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And now as the, the letter ends, here is the grand finale. 
the grand finale of Peter's words, his final words to these dear Christians that he loves dearly and that he wants to see them to endure through the very end despite suffering. So how would you end a letter? We don't send very many letters anymore, but we used to. And when we did, we would send some final words that would sum our letters up as a summary. These were the, most, the last and the, the most basic advice or information and, and bring the whole letter, the whole point home to the person that you are writing. You know, a good book is only a good book if it ends well. A good book can go all the way to the end, but if it's terrible, then it's no longer a good book. We can say that about movies. I'm sure we all can come up with examples of several of these. But I want to sum up the finale of 1 Peter with three simple words. Resist, wait, and stand. Resist, wait, and stand. He, the three points of the sermon. These will sum up our passage and the emphasis of the letter. So first, we must resist. Certainly a fashionable word by so many these days, unless now, um, unless the opposition or authority now is someone whom you agree with, now you agree with them wholeheartedly no matter what they do, no matter how hypocritical they are, you agree with them regardless. It's funny how that changes. The cries of tyranny and tyranny and fascist and racist to now safety. We all must cooperate together. The government is here to help you. You must cooperate. The, collect the collective is more important than the individual. From chapter 2, we understood that Christians are to submit and be submissive to the authorities that God has placed over them. Governmental authorities, governors, bosses, masters, husbands, and such. We do not resist the authority over us, but rather our call is to, be, is to submit even if we suffer. Because we believe that it was God that in his sovereignty that he has put them over us in positions of power. Now, we know that there's a big caveat to come because we read it this morning in our statement of faith that we do resist tyranny. And I mean real tyranny. Real tyranny. We resist authorities that seek to usurp the authority of God over us. In one way or another, Christians throughout the centuries have stood up courageously for what is biblically and morally right against tyrants in the government and in the church. And if an authority tells us 
to not do something when the Lord has clearly told us and commanded us to, then we as Christians must obey the Lord and his word above man's word and man's law. If the law or man says that we must do something that is clearly commanded for us not to do in God's word, then we must obey the Lord in his word above all. So we resist. And we civilly disobey, and we should stand up to tyrants. And yet, until then, we are to be submissive. So that when we do have to resist, brothers and sisters, that it is no small thing. And that we do not look like hypocrites. As I just said, Christians throughout the centuries have, have stood up and resisted evil and false teachers and heretics and tyrannical governments that had wicked ideologies. The Protestant Reformation, although attributed to Martin Luther, rightfully so, in 1517, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And that fanned the flame of the Reformation of the church. However, the spark that lit the flame started a hundred years earlier with Jan Hus in Czechoslovakia who began preaching openly on the evils of the church and its false doctrine. That was resisting. He resisted the status quo, the toleration of evils and false teaching in the church, and he was killed for it. His resistance, however, sparked the flame. The name Protestant in its most basic definition means to protest. We think of picketing with signs and marching down city avenues. And that's true. There's protesting in that way. Although I have to say the um, Canadian truckers, they have a lot of guts and a lot of style in their protests. But to protest essentially means to object, to disapprove, to disagree, to oppose, and therefore to resist whatever is being opposed. The Reformation wasn't about having marches, but it was about to bring about reform and reformation of the church, to bring it back to sola scriptura, which it had strayed so far from. To firmly put Christ back in his seat as head of the church and to bring back right exegetical preaching to the center of the church. To literally remove the altar of works of the Eucharist and to bring back the pulpit of preaching grace. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be a Protestant, as we are, is to protest and to resist such evils that contradict the gospel. Peter rightly affirms and warns the church that we should be people who resist. Look again at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let's unpack this, unpack this because there's a, there's a lot here that he's getting at for us here at the end of the letter that he wants us to know in this finale. Again, now, for the third time, he says to us, be sober-minded. So those who are still drunk on the world, third time, be sober-minded. This is a big point. If he says it three times, it means that something important is being said here. A Christian, especially a Christian who may be facing persecution and suffering, better be sober-minded. Better be clear-headed. Better have their wits about them. Better know clearly what it means to be humble under the mighty hand of God. Better believe and understand what it means that he cares for you. And he has in store for you so much more and so much greater than the world has to offer you or what the world wants to take away from you. You better be grounded and firmly upon the rock of Christ in his word. That's being sober-minded, but also to be watchful, to be ready, to be on guard, to be prepared, and to be vigilant. Both of these imperatives are written in the aorist, which basically means this, that this is an ongoing action. Hence the word being, right? Being means continually. You're being sober-minded. You're being watchful. It's ongoing. You're continually seeking to be these things. And the reason why we can never stop being sober-minded or being watchful is because verse 8 tells us, and we need to understand this, because you have an adversary. You have an adversary. And this adversary is no mere man. He is no mere beast, but he is the devil himself. And he is your adversary. The name Satan literally means the adversary. Devil means deceiver. Adversary, enemy, deceiver, manipulator, evil, wicked. You know, there's two mistakes that Christians make regarding Satan. And the first one is, is that we could take him too seriously as if he possesses all the attributes of God. Clearly, this is not the case according to Scripture. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. Or is he omniscient and certainly not omnibenevolent? He is under the sovereign hand and decree of God. And he can do nothing outside of the will of God. But the second mistake that Christians make is that we fail to not take him seriously enough. We make him only a, a cartoon in realizing that he is actually deceiving and dangerous as enemies truly are. 
As Peter says, he is like a lion. He is always hungry. He is always looking for someone to attack and to devour. If you were going to bear country in the bush of Alaska, or if you were traveling to the savannah in Africa, I dare to say in one way or another, you are going to be prepared. Or you're going to have people around you that are prepared and understand what it means for a potential bear attack or an attack of a lion. You would understand that. You should be prepared for the right tools. If you go to a zoo, not so much. If you go to a zoo, you're not going to prepare in the same way because the bears and the cats are behind the bars and they're behind the cages. And what we are being told here is that we're not going to the zoo. Seems like it. We're going to the bush. Our adversary is seeking around to attack us in all the ways that he does, some outright and some not. He tempts you to sin, and he knows exactly how to tempt you to sin. He's not God, but he's also not stupid. And he is no rookie at tempting people to sin. He entices us with idolatry and doubt. He blinds and confuses people of the, from the gospel, even to what is now basic truth. He suppresses the truth. Yet he is also like a lion roaring. And no doubt that within the context of 1 Peter, these roars are meant to scare you. Have you ever heard a lion roar? I mean in real life, not just on TV, but have you ever heard a lion roar in real life? It's, I have, and it's, it's nothing that you just hear. It's not something you just hear. It's something that you feel. You feel it within your chest. And if you hear it, if you're not clear-headed, and if you're not watchful, fear will overtake you. For me, it was like, oh yeah, I remember, I'm in a zoo, I'm good to go. I'm not pulling out the Glock. Right? We're good. But if I was not, if I was in the bush, I was, I was in the, a savanna in Africa, I would be a little bit more fearful. I'd be a little bit more ready. The devil's roar in this context is the persecution that is meant to scare you, that is meant to intimidate you, to deny the faith. Because if you deny the faith, and if you walk away, and if you let this scare tactic of his get you, then the devil has devoured you. But we have to stop for a second. And just make a clear contrast just from chapter 5 alone. Because in verse 7, we see how God tenderly cares for his children. And he says, cast all your anxieties and fears upon him. Casting. We're always casting them on him. 
He promises to protect his flock under his mighty hand. Do you see the contrast of God and then this devil who is only killing, intimidating, and destroying? The marks of a culture that is given into him. But then there's God, whom we lean on and we trust. And we no longer fear. We don't let those intimidations drive us. So in verse 9, this is why we resist him. This is why we defy him and we protest. We object to his doubts and to his temptations and to his intimidations. Because he is no friend, but he is our foe. He is our adversary. Our resistance to him, brothers and sisters, must not be passive. It is active. Resistance is active against the foe. And Peter tells us how we are to resist. Resist firm in your faith. Resist firm in your faith. The call to resistance does not summon believers to do Herculean acts of God on their behalf, on their own. Believers are not encouraged to gather all their resources and all their strength and all their tools and all their weapons and talents to do great works of God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain Firm in their faith, that is, we trust in God. Believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust in God, believing that he truly cares for them and will sustain them to the end. And perseverance until the last day is accomplished, brothers and sisters, from the first to the last by faith. And we can do that because here is the truth. Satan is a cheap imitation of the great lion. He's a cheap imitation of the great lion. He is not a lion. He is like a lion. Diminish the things just a little bit. He's like Scar on Lion King. Formidable, smart still, somewhat of a lion, cunning, deceiving, and hateful. But in the movie, he is nothing compared to the king. Our God, Christ, he is the lion of Judah. And he is the king of kings. Do not be overcome by the fact that he is prowling around and roaring. Because our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our own abilities to resist, but our faith is in Christ. He who was the greater and far stronger than Samson who was given strength by God 
to kill the lion in the wilderness and later consumed the honey in its carcass. And like Samson, but greater Christ, he has overcome the devil's temptations. Christ has overcome this world. Christ has overcome sin and death. Christ has overcome Satan and his fallen demons. And they are no match to our king. Insert amen. Our faith is in our conquering king, our victor. And so we resist in his name and by his work alone on the cross. Faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, is our resistance. But we know that in our suffering, as he says, our suffering, it's not new. It's, it's not unique. And in our suffering, we are not alone. Because we know that brothers and sisters all over the world have, are suffering and have suffered. Christians throughout the ages have suffered. Then we share in their sufferings experienced by your brotherhood. Everyone in the Christian family will face the same rejection and discrimination. It is a mark, indeed, of being a part of the same family. So, brothers and sisters, resist. Resist. Put on the full armor of God and resist the schemes of the devil. Second in his finale, as we resist, we must be able to wait. We must be able to wait. We know how we're to wait, soberly, watching, diligently, firm in the truth, exercising faith, always being ready at a moment's notice when temptation or doubt or idolatry comes our way. Or when we hear the roar of intimidation, of suffering and persecution, we resist and we endure. We're always casting our anxieties upon him and we endure as our brothers and sisters for centuries have been doing before us. Waiting does not mean, however, sitting on your hands and putting your feet up. A soldier or a sailor who may be on standby, waiting to meet the enemy, is not sitting back on a couch having drinks and watching television all day. They are training. And they train over and over and over and over. They drill and drill again so that at a moment's notice, repetition and training take over and not fear. And not fear of the enemy when they must be confronted. Waiting, in some ways, however, we know it, there's some passivity to it, of course. But in Christianity, waiting is never to be laziness. It's never to be laziness. There is, there is to be no laziness in the Christian life because we're always to be sober-minded. Laziness means we are becoming drunk with the things of the, of the world. But there is no laziness in the Christian life. We don't have time because we have an adversary. But look at verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now this first phrase, there's this no assuming here. He wants to again just kind of knock out the assuming after you have suffered. Meaning this implies that no matter what, there will be suffering one way or another in this fallen world. Whether it's persecution, abandonment, loss, death, decaying health, whatever it is, buckle up, Christian, because suffering will come. And that's important to know. That's big news. We need to understand that it's not if, but it's when. However, there's something more important here that he wants you to understand, and that is suffering is now only for a little while. Suffering is not eternal. Suffering is not eternal for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he says these things. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer shell is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory behind, beyond all comparison. <clears throat> As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul gets ahead of us a little bit in our passage. But this is exactly what Peter is saying. That those suffering is painful. And that suffering is hard, and it's, it's not pleasant, and we do not wish it upon anyone. The truth is for Christians that it's only temporary, momentary, and yet it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That's the big picture. The big picture is that it's only for just a little while. So, so don't lose sight of the forest amidst the trees. Put suffering in perspective. Put suffering in its place. That it is not the end in itself, but it is the means. That it is only a small part. Because the grander part of the story is that the God of all grace is doing and what he is doing and what he has done and what he is going to do. You know the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, the creator, the sustainer, sovereign ruler of the universe, or as we sing, the sovereign ruler of the skies, the great I am. He, him, he who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You know, the God of all grace. That he has saved you by his grace. Because that is who he is. He is a God. He is God of all grace. And he's continually working in your life by his grace. By his grace, you are being made to be sober-minded and watchful and resisting the adversary. 
He is continually giving you grace upon grace and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, beloved church, do you recognize the grace of God in your life? Of how the God of all grace was working in your life. Sinner who once, or who was saved by grace, who was ransomed from sin and death, to whom once you were enslaved to that deceiver. Remember, he, by grace, has called you. He has called you, unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world, and he, without fail, according to his divine decree, has called you by his Holy Spirit and has drew you to himself, and he gave you the faith to believe, and he has saved you, and he has transformed you, and he has adopted you for his glory alone. So what else is this God of all grace doing? Is that all? Is that all that he did? Is that all that he has done? Is he done doing his part and now we just sit here and wait? Well, yeah, we sit and we, we wait, but he is far from done. He is far from done with you and with me because as it says that he himself, this God of all grace, himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Now, if you didn't catch it, this is Peter's benediction. This is Peter's benediction, along with verse 11. But he's not just pronouncing a blessing over the church. He is clearly stating what he has been saying since chapter 1. He is clearly stating that as we wait for the Lord, and as we endure, as we are sober-minded and watchful in resisting the evil, as we are waiting on the Lord, he says, this is what you have to look forward to. This light momentary thing, suffering just for a little while, but this is what God is doing. And there's no real need to distinguish these four words. They're all verbs, and they're all in the future tense. There's no need to really distinguish them all, because together, together, they're making the same emphatic point. And that is, God, who has called us to eternal glory, will strengthen you, and he will fortify you, so that you will be able to endure to the end. To the end. Not till tomorrow, not till next week, not through three years from now and then drop you, but to the end. He will fulfill his promise to save and deliver. And then on that day, when our Savior Jesus Christ comes again, we will see his work completed. Oh, what a day. That will be. And the reason why we will see it completed is because he will surely see it to the end. The overall important truth from verses 10, 10 and 11 is that God is fulfilling his promises and will fulfill his promises of our future blessing in Christ. 
So wait by trusting and by believing his promises. Remember that our hope is not here in this life and our focus is not necessarily meant to be here all the time. And as Paul said, we look to the things that are eternal. We are setting our mind, Colossians 3, on things that are above. And that puts and keeps our perspective on suffering in its place. But it also gives you perspective when you are waiting patiently for the Lord. When Thanksgiving comes around, that day, the great temptation for many of us is to just to eat the snacks and the treats that are laying around. Because after all, they're meant to be eaten. The cookies, the chips and dip, the cheese and crackers and the sausage, that's all laid out by such wonderful ladies in our life. They're so good and they're so tempting. Boy, but when you smell that turkey fry, or when you smell that turkey smoke, and the mashed potatoes being whipped, and them green beans being cooked, and those biscuits in the oven, there is so much more. And it makes you think twice when you want to fill up on the lesser, because the greater is about to come. Perspective and truth and knowledge gives us patience to wait actively and to set our minds on what's eternal so that as Peter closes this benediction, he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We not only can say that in agreement, brothers and sisters, but in this context of waiting on the Lord, we can truly feel it. Because we're waiting patiently, knowing that he is coming back. And so lastly, as we resist our adversary, as we wait actively, placing all our faith and hope in the Lord, we also want to be a people who stand. Resist, stand, or resist, wait, and stand. To stand is not just standing up. It means to be courageous in the face of evil, in the face of injustice and oppression. I like stories of men and women who stood for what's right. As a kid, I was drawn into these stories and, and, and stories in history of people who have stood. We love movies of the little guy who makes his stand against the insurmountable odds. And sometimes they win, and sometimes they don't. Like in Rocky IV. Right, in Rocky IV. Who didn't cheer for The Rock to beat, not just the original Rock, right? To, not, to, to beat not just another opponent, but the symbol of the evil empire, Soviet Russia, Ivan Drago. Or how about in Red Dawn? when Patrick Swayze led a group of high schoolers in an insurgency against invading communists. We need another one of those, right? 
We could go on and on with, with, with the fake stories, but there are some gloriously real ones, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who as a German stood up against the Nazi regime and spoke the truth and lost his life. And again, Martin Luther, who stood against the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and actually said, here I stand, I can do no other. This is what it means to stand. In these days as Christians, we must stand, not sit, and not be cowards, but courageous. To endure well is to stand and not to sit or fall, to stand against evil. We stand against sin and stand against temptation. We stand for our brothers and sisters who have, might have stumbled who are, or, or who are behind us. In verses 12 through 14, we see in Peter's final remarks and in his recognitions that we are called to stand. He talks about, uh, he says, by Sylvanus, which is, by the way, is probably Silas. He says, as a faithful brother regarding him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you a greeting, and so does Mark. John Mark, my son, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. He is certainly recognizing the work that Silas has done in regards to getting this letter out to them. And he also acknowledges the love and the greeting that John Mark wants to give to the saints who are suffering in Asia Minor. But do you see the command in the middle to us, to the church, that they would stand firm, to stand firm in the true grace of God that has been declared and exhorted throughout this letter? that these are the truths, that these are the foundations, that these are the, the principles and the morals by which you stand firmly in. Whether the tide rises and the waves crash against you, stand. If you have nothing that you stand on, then you'll end up standing for everything, which actually means you stand for nothing. But if we firmly stand upon the word of God, which we know is to be true, brothers and sisters, then we are standing firmly within the grace of God. Yet understand something also that's being revealed here. That as you are standing firm in the truth of God's word, that you are not standing alone. You're not standing alone. He's saying, look, there's Silas. Look, here's, here's John Mark, and, and, and there he's too. He's here too, and, and they're here. And look, here's the church. They're here with you as well. Yeah, the church in Rome, right? She who is in Babylon, the church in Rome, they're here with you. Those who are likewise chosen, like you who have been called. They are all sending their greetings with you to stand firm as they are likewise standing firm. So what do you think he's saying? He's saying you're not alone. That you're loved, that we stand together. 
in closing this letter, in those little greetings, that's what he's saying. He says, you're not alone. We're with you. Brothers and sisters, we're with each other. You're not standing by yourself. You're not on the hilltop by yourself. Christians, we are meant to be together. And knowing this does something for the Christian who is suffering, who is about to suffer, who is going to go through persecution. You are not alone and that you are loved by God, but you are also loved and will be cared for by God's people. We stand firmly together as the church. We stand firm, knowing that the world may take everything from us, It cannot take our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles set apart by God's Holy Spirit for the salvation accomplished by Christ and now we are on our way home. We stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering. He intends for it to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our our future salvation when Christ is revealed. We stand firm knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ traveled the road marked with suffering and blazed the path for us to follow. We stand stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed and we'll be exalted to glory as Christ was. We stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we are showing uh, evidences of grace that we are truly Christians. We stand firm by humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that he will exalt us. We stand firm knowing that we have been called by God whose dominion is over all things and all people forever and ever and therefore he will surely complete the work in us in full and complete redemption and restoration. And lastly, we stand firm because we are not alone. We have been adopted and brought into his church. We resist We wait, we stand. And as Christians now for centuries who have heard these words, who have read these words and have believed these words, brothers and sisters, I say them once more to you this morning. The church, the beloved of Jesus Christ, that may the grace, may the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.